part. We had a tragedy this morning in our neighborhoods. A shooting rampage in Langley spanning six hours. Why it's sending chills through the homeless community. Plus, BC's gang war heats up. And as always, this is dominated by drug trade, personal revenge, and market control of illicit substances. Charges laid in a shocking double homicide in Whistler. And a long-awaited apology. I am sorry. I ask forgiveness. The powerful moment on the journey to reconciliation. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. It was a shocking wake-up call in Metro Vancouver this morning. An emergency alert hitting thousands of mobile phones and warning of gunfire in Langley. Multiple shooting scenes and what were described as transient victims. The lone gunman ultimately shot and killed by police. Krista Dow joins us live in Langley with more on the tragic timeline and some breaking details about the shooter. Krista. Sophie, the homicide team has now identified the shooter behind these horrific acts of violence as 28-year-old Jordan Daniel Goggin. Police say he was known to them but had non-criminal contact. What they don't know at this hour is what motivated him to carry out these attacks. This is evidence of a violent early morning rampage, a shooting spree that lasted about six hours in the city of Langley. You never know, right? Could be just random, random people getting hurt. Two people killed and two others seriously injured after a lone gunman fired at multiple people in a series of attacks at several locations right across the city. Some of the victims believed to be transient or of no fixed address. It's like a despicable act, right? How, how could you hurt somebody who is in big trouble because if somebody is homeless? The homicide team says the shooting started at midnight at the Cascades Casino where a woman was shot and remains in critical condition. Three hours later, the gunman shoots and kills a man at Creekstone Supportive Housing. Later, at 5 a.m., another man shot at a Langley City bus loop near Logan Avenue. About 45 minutes later, at the Langley Bypass and 200 Street, a fourth victim was shot in the leg. At that same location, a black SUV riddled with bullets and it's here where police shot and killed the suspect, Jordan Daniel Goggin. It's still too early to discuss motive. We have a lot of information to cover. We're interviewing the suspect's family associates, and hopefully through that information we'll be able to piece together what happened and what transpired to this. An emergency alert warning of an active shooter in a white sedan went out at around 6.20 this morning, issued more than half an hour after the last shooting. Police aren't releasing the victims' names as they notify next of kin. Meanwhile, the community here is shattered after what transpired. I'm, I'm just heartbroken this morning. I, 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 I can't say it any other way because I know, I know. Some of the people involved, I know, I know. Well, police say they continue to interview his family members to learn more about his history. Meanwhile, the homicide team is asking anyone who may know about Jordan's history or had contact with Jordan Goggin uh, in the past 
past few while to give them a call as they try to piece together what happened in the city of Langley today. All right. Thanks for that. Krista Dow reporting in Langley. Uh, now, to reiterate what Krista said, it is believed the victims were marginalized members of society and were possibly targeted by the gunman because of that. Kamal Karamali is live now with more on that part of the story. Uh, Kamal, you spoke with a homeless advocate in Langley today who knew some of the victims. That's right. The fatal shooting of one of these homeless men happened behind me here at the Langley bus loop. This one at around 5 a.m. But if you take a quick walk with me here, just across the street is where these homeless advocates say this man used to go for food, a bit of shelter, some other resources as, as at what's called the uh, Langley Vineyard Christian Fellowship just across the street there. And workers there believe that's the reason he was here overnight, keeping close to the place where he might find some safety and comfort. In fact, workers at the facility say both men who died and the woman in hospital critically injured all would go there often to use the services here at the Langley Vineyard Christian Fellowship. Uh, workers also tell us all three were in their 20s and 30s, suffering from drug addiction and would spend almost every night out on the streets, vulnerable and mostly alone. Now, Langley City's mayor says she believes there are roughly 300 homeless in the city with not enough shelters or subsidized housing to help them. Now, those who helped look after them as part of a Christian group called Kim's Angels want people to remember they weren't just homeless, but human beings with families and full lives. Simply that they were other human souls, uh, like any of us, they had good days and bad days. Um, some interactions were richer than others, but they were near people that deserved compassion, deserved compassion. And, uh, you know, they had parents, they had probably siblings, maybe children. Um, they're human. And now they're gone. They're two human beings that are kind, uh, they would give you the shirt off their back if they had an extra shirt. Like, that's the kind of people they are. So um, I'm so sad, and I, I, my condolences to the family is just that, that they have to find out about their kids that way. Now, there's growing concern among these homeless advocates that the violence against the homeless population will continue to grow with very few ways to protect them. Uh, they're now pushing for city council to increase the number of shelters and subsidized housing here, Sophie. Meanwhile, uh, those people who you just heard from that knew the victims say they will hold a vigil to remember the deceased next week. Back over to you. All right, thanks for that. Kamal Karamali reporting in Langley as well. Now, the emergency alert issued this morning in connection to the shootings is just the second time the notification system has been used in B.C. And the province is now assessing whether it was used properly and ended up on the phones of the right people. Richard Zussman has more. It came with a beep or a ring. The first alert is early as around 6.20 a.m., a warning of multiple shooting scenes in Langley, reminding people to stay away. The police were dealing with a very fluid and dynamic situation. People in Langley City aren't necessarily just from Langley City, right? So I think it is important that everybody is alerted. Then, a little less than an hour later, a second text telling the public the suspect was no longer a threat. The alert was out until we were able to determine that we had the right person in custody. 2021, the RCMP sent an emergency text alert in Vanderhoof, the first of its kind in B.C. The alerts are only sent during active, dangerous situations to the public. 
there is strict criteria on the alert, recognizing that some vulnerable people may not have access to a phone. The alert was uh, specific to the geographic area where we, where we thought there would be risk, where we assessed risk. But in this case, the text didn't end up in only those targeted areas. The Oak Bay police tweeting there was no active emergency in the capital. And the reason for the tweets? Many residents only received the second text, where Langley wasn't even mentioned. After every uh, situation, there's always a review done to look at how you can do things better, what lessons can be learned. Uh, at the same time, uh, as these alerts are one tool. The alert offered vague advice only to stay away from two areas and came hours after the first shooting. Another concern is the first text made mention of the transient population, but advocates for the unhoused says that population may have cell phones, but little access to data. On emergency communications, I mean, I think you've got to work out who are they intended to, to reach and benefit. And by all means, it reached a lot of people this morning. But, but I got to say, there's, there probably weren't many unhoused people that were, you know, were able to reach that communication. The alert finally, officially coming to an end around 3.30, eight hours after the second text. The buzz even interrupting an RCMP press conference. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Now to Whistler, where charges of first-degree murder have been laid in connection with a gangland slaying that claimed two lives over the weekend. Our Jasmine Bala is in Whistler with more on those charged and the feeling in the resort community today. Jasmine. Yeah, Sophie, it's business as usual here at Whistler Village. The resort is open. People are walking around with their bikes, people going up the gondolas. There's not much to point to the shocking scene of a double murder right here on Sunday afternoon. Power washing away the remnants of a double homicide in Whistler. All that's left of a brazen daylight gang shooting in front of the Sundial Hotel. Why do they do this in such a public place? Whistler is not the place to have these wars. RCMP responded to reports of two men shot at about 12.20 Sunday afternoon. One victim was pronounced dead on scene. Video shows paramedics attempting to revive him, but ultimately they were unable to. The other victim died of his injuries a short time later. It's a constant 24-7. Uh, they're looking for one another, right? They're out hunting like somebody would go hunt a deer out in the forest. A short distance away, only two and a half kilometers, a burning vehicle was located in a residential area believed to be connected to the killings. The victims have been identified as Sathindar Agil and Maninder Daliwal, who was a member of the Gang Brothers Keepers. Daliwal was named as one of VPD's top six gangsters in 2021, someone who posed a significant risk to public safety. Wherever they find their potential target, they'll go get them, and they don't care who's around. Maninder was the brother of Harpreet Singh Daliwal, the man gunned down outside of Cadero's restaurant in Coal Harbour last year. And here's the message to kids is you never know when they're coming for you and you won't see it coming. Sea to Sky RCMP were able to locate and arrest multiple suspects in connection with the Whistler shooting, including two in Squamish. Investigators providing an update Monday. Two individuals were arrested and have subsequently been charged for first-degree murder in relation to this double homicide. Those males are Gersimran Sahoda, who's a 24-year-old male, also Tanvir Kak, who is a 20-year-old male. They are known to police. 
Now, the investigation is still ongoing. IHIT is asking anyone with video to contact them, and investigators say there is no further risk to the public at this time because it was a targeted shooting. Back to you, Sophie. Jasmine Bala in Whistler Forest. Thanks, Jasmine. Still a lot of questions tonight about how a man facing a murder charge for a gang-related killing in 2012 here in B.C. could have busted out of the North Fraser Pretrial Centre in Port Coquitlam. Keith Baldry is here with more on this. Keith, those photographs RCMP released of two suspected accomplices were later confirmed to be fakes. Mm -hmm. That is a little embarrassing, to say the least. Uh, but how does that even happen? There's supposed to be security screening, criminal record checks, and I know our public safety minister addressed this today. Yes, there's so many video surveillance cameras everywhere in society. The legislature here has 66 around this building. So these cameras do exist at uh, pretrial uh, centers, jails, correctional facilities. The RCMP have said so far they have yet to find a quality, a high quality enough uh, video still of these two people who posed as contractors to help spring uh, a, a accused killer from uh, custody. Uh, this subject was one of many that came up with Public Safety Minister Mike Farmworth, who held a hastily called news conference late. Uh, this afternoon to address a number of the crime stories we've seen play out as we covered on the news hour tonight. He says he's still asking questions about what happened with these fake photographs and whether or not we can get some, some good quality video footage of these two people. And there may well be uh, uh, legitimate reasons why uh, they have not released a videotape at this point and it's probably best to direct that question specifically to them. That being said, I have said that uh, I expect uh, answers to those questions because uh, the public have those, those same questions as, as, as I do. Uh, but uh, right now it is, it is a, a major investigation and the police are handling that investigation. So Farmworth later told me he will continue to press for answers to these questions. Not sure about the timeline of how quickly we're going to get this information, including better images of these two uh, suspected uh, uh, accomplices to a suspected killers fleeing from justice. All right. Thanks for that, Keith. RCMP have confirmed the suspect in last week's double homicide in Chilliwack has been found dead. I hit released photos of 50-year-old Eric John Shastelo, who was considered armed and dangerous after the incident on Thursday. He was wanted in connection with a shooting that left two women dead and one man injured at a home in the 9700 block of McNaught Road. At the time, the suspect fled into Jeep YJ, which was subsequently located at Bridal Falls, east of Chilliwack. Significant police resources were involved in the search for the armed suspect over the past few days. And I can advise you that as of today, the suspect was located deceased. Investigators say that shooting was targeted and the victims and suspect knew each other. A powerful moment today as an Indigenous woman stood before the Pope and sang O Canada in Cree. Her gut-wrenching performance followed the Pope's historic apology for residential school abuses. And it was indeed a very emotional day as the Pope began his Canadian tour, the leader of the Catholic Church asking for forgiveness. Global's Kyle Benning reports. <laughs> It was a moment many Indigenous people in Canada have been waiting for. 
Pope Francis made an apology on Canadian soil after hearing from Indigenous delegates at the Vatican three months ago. I am sorry. I ask forgiveness. The pontiff apologized following that European meeting, but noted that this is the start of what he calls a penitential pilgrimage. Many in attendance glad to see the Pope's first steps towards repairing the relationship between the church and indigenous communities. It was clear to us all that you listened deeply and with great compassion to the testimonies that told of the way our languages were suppressed, our culture taken from us. About 150,000 Indigenous children were said to have attended residential schools in Canada, with most of them run by the Catholic Church. Before his apology, the Pope took a moment to pray in the Erminskin Cree Nation Cemetery, a ground that holds marked and unmarked grave sites of residential school students and survivors. A banner with the more than 4,000 names of children who died while attending residential schools also sprawled through the powwow grounds in Musquachis. The Pope also brought back a child's pair of moccasins, which were given to him by a member of the Indigenous delegation while at the Vatican. The memory of those children is indeed painful. It urges us to work to ensure that every child is treated with love, honor, and respect. Pope Francis is also partaking in a Catholic ceremony at the Sacred Heart Church in Edmonton, which is the only designated Indigenous Catholic church in the country. On Tuesday, the pontiff is set to hold a mass with tens of thousands in Commonwealth Stadium. Kyle Benning, Global News. And we understand these stories may be triggering for our viewers. There is support available for survivors and their families. The number is toll-free 24 hours a day, and you can speak in confidence. 1-800-721-0066. Jake Vertanen's sexual assault trial is nearing an end. The decision now rests with the jury, sent out to deliberate late this afternoon. Final arguments from both sides next on the NewsHour. A new measure aimed at easing the pressure on passport offices in Metro Vancouver. Coming up later on the news hour. Plus. <laughs> Jay Janitor gets airborne. His wild ride with Red Bull coming up later tonight. Right now, though, a warning about this next story. Some of the content might not be suitable for everyone in your house. Closing arguments today in the sexual assault trial of former Vancouver Canuck Jake Vertanen. As Aaron MacArthur reports, much of it focused on the testimony of the complainant. As is often the case in sexual assault trials, there is very little in the way of third-party evidence. It often boils down to a he-said-she-said situation. Monday in court, the legal teams representing Jake Vertanen and the Crown painted wildly different versions of the testimony and which of the witnesses should be believed. Closing submissions wrapped Monday with defense claiming the complainant was an unconvincing witness, misremembering or not remembering key facts which should cast doubt on all of her testimony. Defense counsel reminding the jury that any amount of reasonable doubt is enough to find a verdict of not guilty. Lawyer Brock Martland said in his argument the complainant's testimony was evasive and argumentative. She told several half-truths about that night. Cross-examination discovered several inconsistencies in her testimony about what happened in that hotel room in September of 2017. 
He went on to argue, in direct examination, the complainant testified that none of the kissing was consensual. But during cross, she accepted the opposite. She said she did want to kiss for Tannen. It was something else when and where consent was not given. Crown's closing submission was brief and to the point. Alan Ip countering, just because the complainant misremembered or didn't remember facts from the night doesn't mean the sexual assault didn't happen. He argued she doesn't have to fight him off or scratch him. She did all she could, pushing against his hips until she couldn't anymore. He went on to say to the jury the complainant was as credible as anyone could expect given the events in that hotel room and answered all of the questions put to her. Defense has argued there was no issue with consent. Crown says the complainant put her hand on her chest and said no. She tried to leave. She tried to push him off. Vertanen penetrated her anyway. What more does she have to do? Alan Ip asked the jury. Justice Catherine Wedge finished her instructions to the jury Monday afternoon. The 12 men and women now have about a week's worth of testimony to go over before they reach a verdict. Aaron McCarthy, Global News. A notorious Kelowna fraudster who posed as a social worker and stole thousands of dollars from the children in his care learned his fate today. As Global's Taya Fast reports, several organizations say his sentencing sends a clear message. Notorious Kelowna fraudster Robert Riley Saunders has been sentenced to five years behind bars after stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars from the Ministry of Children and Family Development. Saunders operated a scheme that included fake documents and dodgy bank accounts to steal an estimated $460,000 while employed as a social worker. During the trial, B.C. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Bilson explained how Saunders managed to get rich at the expense of the children in his care. The B.C. Association of Social Worker says they support his sentence, but add there needs to be better protection of the public moving forward. One way of doing that for social work is to change the Social Workers Act to make sure that all social workers are required to register with the BC College of Social Workers. That's the regulatory college in British Columbia. They create standards for practice, a code of ethics. They receive complaints about social work social work uh, practice, they investigate, and they can discipline right up, including to removing a person's right to practice as a social worker. He went on to say that this case highlights the difficulty that Indigenous people have in the child welfare system. And we're just remembering again today the the victims of Robert Riley Saunders and others like him who take advantage in a predatory style way uh, of these uh, children. BC Prosecution Service also chimed in saying that these crimes are exacerbated by the egregious breach of trust for the vulnerable Indigenous youth and that this case sends a clear message that offences such as this involving gross abuse of trust and authority will attract severe penalties. Saunders also received two years for breach of trust and one month for his fake degree, which he will serve at the same time. TFAS, Global News, Kelowna. Coming up, the heat wave begins. The biggest risk from extreme heat isn't actually the temperature outdoors for most people. It's a temperature in your house and in your apartment. Warnings across the province and the measures in place to help you stay cool. Also ahead, Powell River Hospital gets a new name. The meaning behind Cuffit later on the news hour. 
Good evening. Dealing what's, with what's left of a crash here at the Botello Bridge, southbound before mid-span in the right lane. Traffic out of New West is heavily backed up as a result. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Kermac, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, hype of a crash at the Botello Bridge. Global BC presents the 30th Annual Honda Celebration of Life. Join us this summer to explore the festival, save your spot, then see the skies come alive. Honda Celebration of Life, July 23rd, 27th, and 30th in partnership with Global BC. Well, the first heat warning of the season is now in effect as temperatures across the province are expected to soar this week. Kylie Stanton tells us what to expect and what the experts say about handling the heat. After months of waiting for the sun to come out, it's finally here. But soon enough, it'll be a matter of beating the heat. Air conditioning? Stay in the shade. Heat warnings are now in effect right across the province, from the south coast to the Peace region. And that's due to the strengthening ridge of high pressure that's going to bring us temperatures into the low 30s in a lot of coastal locations and even into the high 30s or even touching 40 degrees in the southern interior. In preparation, the Vancouver Emergency Management has turned on its misting stations while activating its cooling centers, providing residents with access to air conditioning and water if their homes get too hot. So grab a thermometer, look at the thermostat in your, in your suite and anything approaching 31 and above, that's getting to, to, uh, to dangerously hot levels. Oh, it's hot as heck. It's not expected to get quite as hot as last summer's heat dome, but if we've learned anything from that weather event, it's to take these warnings seriously. <laughs> According to the BC Coroner's Service, more than 600 people died during that stretch of extreme heat, and the hope is this time around, everyone is more prepared, particularly seniors, young children, those with mental health conditions, and those who are pregnant. I'm really encouraging the public to to get involved and engaged. And if there are people in your life that you know of that are at risk, take a look at their heat plan. There's also concern the impact these temperatures may have on the wildfire situation in the province. The 2200 hectare Nohomon Creek wildfire is burning near Lytton, what's forecast to be one of the hottest spots in the province as of Thursday. Later on this week, we will see the heat backing off a little bit, but still remaining warm in a lot of places. Right now, the weather event is not being classified as an extreme heat emergency. But of course, like the temperatures, that could change at any given moment. Parameters around that have been put in place by experts, and they're based on both the daytime temperature and the nighttime temperature. And those decisions are what guide the experts in terms of when it is time to issue uh, an alert. Kylie Stanton, Global News. All right, senior meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now with a closer look at the timeline of this heat event. Christy? Sophie, for the south coast, the peak of the heat will really likely occur tomorrow, and then we'll gradually get a little cooler throughout the week. Look at the map here. I just want to show you the breakdown of the regions. So for the south coast, inland regions could see anywhere from 31 to 36 degrees tomorrow. And our peak of the heat starts tomorrow and continues into Friday. But those of you in the interior, there's a bit of a lag in that timeline. Your peak of the heat will start on Wednesday, more likely Thursday, Friday, where some areas could reach 40 degrees, likely 
Lytton. By comparison, during the heat dome last year, Lytton hit 49.6 degrees. So we're not hitting that kind of temperature. Nonetheless, at night, for the next four to five days, we'll likely see temperatures at night not drop down below 17 degrees. So very little relief expected in the days to come. Back to you. All right, thanks, Christy. Coming up, Rogers called to task. Wait, wait, so wait, you think Canadians have alternative and choice in this marketplace? Very much so. Um, and you're saying that with a straight face. Tough questions for the communications giant after that n- massive network outage. Also tonight, a new development involving the latest tent city in Vancouver. What officials have planned for the encampment on Hastings? Counterflow is out for southbound traffic over here at the Massey Tunnel, seeing minimal delays in both directions. Most of the congestion is actually on the Steeston off-ramp at the north end. The Steer Into Summer event is on. Take on any tough jobs this summer with the powerful new 2022 Chevrolet Silverado 1500. Reserve yours today at your local Vancouver Chevrolet dealer. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. A pilot is in serious condition after their small plane made an emergency landing near Qualicum Beach Airport on Sunday evening. According to fire officials, the Cessna 172 landed in some trees not far from the airport. Fire officials responded to the area and located the plane after a short hike. The pilot was the only occupant. His leg became pinned inside the aircraft, but he was alert and conscious. After about half an hour, he was transported by medevac to Victoria. But we were able to hike in and find the plane within 10 minutes from the end of the airport. And we were able to make contact on foot with the pilot. He was alert, conscious, uh, facial lacerations, and uh, leg was pinned as well. So he was unable to extricate himself from the plane. The pilot was transported to Victoria via Medivac. As mentioned, the Transportation Safety Board is now investigating a cause. Executives with Rogers were grilled today while testifying in front of a parliamentary committee to explain the network outage that cut off millions of Canadians earlier this month. Global's Shalima Maharaj reports on the questions raised over the blackout, which left customers unable to use their phones, internet services, or even dial 911. It's been just over two weeks since the outage that left millions of Canadians out of touch and disconnected. Appearing before the Standing Parliamentary Committee, Canada's Innovation Minister isn't pulling any punches about who's responsible. It should not be to the minister to chase the CEO of a major telco in Canada when something like that happened. It should rather be the other way around. Testifying before committee, Francois-Philippe Champagne told MPs the government is in solution mode to prevent the next large-scale telecom failure. When I speak to them, they listen. That's bottom line. They don't Uh, have to follow, though. Well, listen, they do. Uh, They do. Trust me, they do. Businesses across the country were handcuffed, having to turn customers away when the Interact payment systems went down. We will set a higher standard by physically separating our wireless and internet networks and create an always-on network. To be frank, this added layer of protection will be expensive. We estimate it will cost at least a quarter of a billion dollars. And calls for increased competition in the Canadian telecom space keep getting louder in the wake of July 8th's outage. Isn't the concentration of customers in one particular company a challenge to resilience in and of itself? They have alternative and they have choice. Wait, wait, so wait, 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 you you think Canadians have alternative and choice in this marketplace? Very much so. Um, And you're saying that with a straight face? 
the minister and the government definitely need to own a significant component of what's happening here because ultimately the companies will do what the government sets in terms of expectation. According to security expert Christian Leuprecht, they haven't set the bar high. I think we need real rules similar to what we have in the airline sector about what happens when there are these kind of outages. I think that we need greater transparency and disclosure around these issues. In the meantime, Rogers and its rivals have another 45 days left to meet a government deadline to produce solutions should another outage occur. Shalima Maharaj, Global News, Ottawa. One of Hollywood's most respected and well-known actors has died. Paul Servino passed away today of natural causes at the age of 83. His wife, Dee Dee, issuing a statement saying, Our hearts are broken. There will never be another Paul Sorvino. The imposing actor best known for his role as a mob boss in Goodfellas and a stint on the long-running TV show Law & Order. Sorvino originally wanted to be an opera singer before making his Broadway debut as an actor in the mid-1960s. Sorvino was survived by his wife and three children, including actress Mira Sorvino, who tweeted today, A life of love and joy and wisdom with him is over. The hospital in Powell River has a new name. It will now be known as Cuthet General Hospital. The new name was proposed by the Tla'aman government last year and means working together, bringing together. The city of Powell River is also considering a name change. The community was named for the official, for an official rather, in the Department of Indian Affairs, who supported residential schools and a ban on the potlatch. Still to come, an Alberta dog takes top honors at a prestigious event. If you can beat the good dogs, that's saying something. Her big win at Westminster later on the news hour. Plus, putting a dent in the passport backlog, the new measure officials hope will help. Next. Federal government is opening a new passport pickup location in Metro Vancouver, hoping to alleviate the nightmares we've been reporting on for weeks. The federal minister responsible for passports, Karina Gould, has announced people will no longer be limited to picking up their passports in Vancouver or Surrey, where lineups have been hours or even days long. Gould says beginning today, the passport office in Richmond will be available for, pass, uh, for picking up passports as well. Up until now, that office would only take passport applications. All right, let's bring in meteorologist Christy Gordon once again to look at that weather forecast as things really start to heat up now. Mm -hmm. So again, for the south coast, the hottest conditions really will start tomorrow. And that's when we're going to see the peak of the heat. I want to show you this map that I showed you earlier just one more time to really be able to absorb the numbers that we're talking about. So away from the water around the south coast, we could see up to 36 degrees. But there'll be so much humidity across the south coast that it could feel like 40. By comparison, we had 41 degrees during the heat dome last year. So we're nowhere near that. But nonetheless, this is heat that is substantial. And we still could break some records. Those of you in the interior, Thompson, Okanagan, as well as the Kootenai region, that's where we could see 38, 39, maybe Lytton hitting 40 degrees. But it's a bit of a delay in terms of the timeline for those of you in the interior. So for the south coast and coastal regions, including the north coast, hottest day tomorrow. Then it'll gradually get cooler, but staying above 31 degrees right through Friday. So that's significant in terms of the heat wave. And overnight lows will range from 18 to 20 degrees for the next four to five nights. So we really won't get any relief from, from the heat. And then there's the interior timeline. I think the two hottest days for your area will be Thursday, Friday, 
but you'll really start to see the temperatures soar on Wednesday. So not too bad tomorrow for you, but it will be across the south coast. Stay in the shade, drink your water, have a cool bath, and stay in that cool bath to really drop your core temperature. Get your hair wet. That's another way to really cool your temperature and get yourself in front of a fan. So there's your seven-day forecast. Lots of sunshine for all you sun lovers out there tonight. Central windows, weather window. I don't know where it's coming to you from, but it really doesn't matter when you look at this shot. Sophie, it could be anywhere. Just enjoying the evening with a nice summer stroll. It looks lovely. Um, <laughs> our director, Justin, who may or may not be follically challenged, wanted to point out, Christy, what if you have no hair to get wet? Ah, well, <laughs> just get your your head wet then. Just get your head wet. Just hey, put a Getting cool your body wet. An old baseball yeah, trick. Yeah, cool washcloth. Just keep yourself cool. Yeah, an old baseball trick was take your what? baseball hat, dip it in ice water, and just put it on your head. Oh, that mm-hmm. sounds refreshing. See? Yeah, I go. love doing that when I play. Mm-hmm. I like that. Okay. All right, Squire. Mm-hmm. A little advice and a little sports. Yes, the Whitecaps and Toronto FC will play for the Canadian Championship of Soccer tomorrow night at BC Place Stadium. But Toronto has bulked up with two stars from Italy. They, have, they could bring whoever they want, but we'll be ready. Lorenzo Insigne and Federico or Federico Bernadeschi, along with some other additions, make TFC a lot more formidable than they were earlier this season. And later tonight, top dog, the Alberta Pup, on the podium at the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show. What was that? My alert didn't make a noise this morning. So I got the I got the alert notification on the phone, but oh, I didn't I see. there yes, was no yes. noise associated with oh, it. And I'm just I trying see. to figure out why. Okay. You should phone your provider. Well, Ask. Rogers is otherwise preoccupied oh, at the moment. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Wait till they're not preoccupied. Yeah, go for it. The uh, Vancouver Whitecaps will have their largest crowd of the season tomorrow night at BC Place for the Canadian Championship final against Toronto FC. The winner of this game goes to the CONCACAF Champions League tournament next year. They've already sold 21,000 tickets. Now, Toronto has won this thing right beside my head, the Voyagers Cup, more than anybody, eight times in all the Whitecaps. They've only won it once. Every time that you're, you have the possibility to to lift the trophy, I think it's uh, it's a kind of a big, big, big game for a club. Such a big game that the Whitecaps didn't let any of their key players play a full 90 minutes on Saturday in that 3-1 loss to Chicago, which hopefully won't be lost points they'll need to make the playoffs down the stretch. The Canadian Championship is something Vancouver hasn't won since 2015, and they really want to end the drought. Besides winning the trophy, I think that would give us the boost to fight for the playoffs till the end. That's giving up very good energy. Playing Toronto FC for the trophy won't be as easy as it might have been a month ago because TFC's two Italian stars have arrived. Lorenzo Insigne and Federico Bernardeschi. They'll be in the lineup for the championship. They led Toronto to a 4-0 win on Saturday against Charlotte and they were part of Italy's win for the Euros of 2020. Probably one of the best teams in MLS right now, but, you know, they can bring whoever they want. It's fine. I played, actually, against uh, all of them when I was at Livorno. Uh, not a very good memory when we played in Signe. We played in Napoli. We were losing 4-0 after the, <laughs> at the end of the first half. So hopefully it's going to be different this time. <laughs> 
Both of the Calgary Flames news stars have told Calgary fans and the Flames what they want to hear. Jonathan Huberdeau and uh, Mackenzie Wieger both said today they are open to signing new contracts with Calgary after being traded there by Florida last Friday for Matthew Kachuk. Both of them will be free agents next summer. Now Jay Janauer is going to turn in the Maverick. This year's celebration of light is also a celebration of flight, courtesy of Red Bull aerobatic pirate pilot, make that Pete McLeod, a former air racer who actually was third overall in 2017, and someone who literally was born to do things with planes that defy gravity and sometimes defy imagination. Straight up, kick it in the back, almost to a stop over here. My office, uh, it's a fast one, faster than most. Very exciting, and it is, I think, truly, it's that three-dimensional freedom um, where um, you're just not constrained, really, in any way, shape, or form of what you can do with the airplane. Being in the cockpit with Red Bull aerobatic pilot Pete McLeod is more thrilling than any thrill ride you can think of, and not thrill-a-minute kind of stuff. More like thrill-a-second. Going straight up. Got a roll in it. Hanging straight up, kick her in the back, almost to a stop over here. Wow. All these maneuvers um, I've done thousands of times um, at a higher altitude, and you bring that precision in to be able to do it low level because when you are doing it close to the ground, um, there's zero margin for error. There's no lying about that. It's it, The danger level is real. Um, it's very pass-fail. <laughs> Number 84 McLeod, you cleared into the track. Smoke on. Pete's one of Red Bull's top air race pilots. His first seat time in a plane coming at the age of six weeks old when his father, who was a pilot, took Pete for his first ride. He's been flying ever since, but not for the reason you're probably thinking of. It's interesting, you know, I, I never um, label myself as like a stuntman or an adrenaline junkie, actually. I'm, I'm not, uh, you won't catch me like hopping on a skateboard. McLeod's flown his Red Bull stunt plane all over the world, but performing here above English Bay in front of hundreds of thousands of fellow Canadians is Pete's definition of a perfect work day. And what a day at the office it is. The, uh, the event here in Vancouver is something we look forward to. The desk is the same, the layout of the desk in the plane, but the view out the office window changes. So I've been um, very fortunate to, to fly and compete um, largely all over the world, and which is pretty cool from a, you know, a kid from northern Ontario. There we go. <laughs> my job, uh, my job's not a job. I go out and uh, do what I love and have fun every day, and I'm just ultra fortunate that, uh, that uh, it works and people enjoy it. So I, I, I think that's the main thing for me. Jay didn't wear a crash helmet because he didn't want to wreck his hair. <laughs> and he came back with perfect I hair. would buy that for sure. All right, there you go. All right, looked like fun. Thanks, Squire. Up next, how to win big at the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show. Jordan Armstrong standing by with a preview of what's coming up tonight on Global News at 11. Jordan? Sophie, Vancouver's fire chief is ordering the removal of tents and structures from the sidewalks of East Hastings Street. There has been a dramatic spike in sidewalk tenting in the downtown east side ever since the city ended so-called street sweeps on July 1st. 
Fire Chief Karen Fry says the situation cannot continue because, in her words, should a fire occur, it would be catastrophic. At 11, we'll tell you how Mayor Kennedy Stewart is responding. Plus, we're keeping an eye on the Jake Vertanen trial, which is now in the hands of the jury. Any developments tonight on Global News at 11. Sophie. All right, sounds good. Thank you, Jordan. Southern Alberta is now home to a champion pup. As Global's Jacqueline Cousy explains, a dog from McGrath recently won an award at the prestigious Westminster Dog Show. You want to come up against good dogs. And if you can beat the good dogs, that's saying something. It takes years of breeding and perfecting a pedigree to land the title of champion at the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show. For Valerie Nielsen, it's taken more than a decade. Last month, her dog two-year-old Alta Ocean's Symphony of the Seas, or Oshi, won Best of Opposite Sex in the Miniature American Shepherd category at the prestigious competition in New York City. It's been very exciting and very rewarding. She says a lot of work goes into getting a puppy prepped for a show, including a rigorous training schedule, a change in diet, and getting them used to loud noises. They need to go into that ring like like working hurting dogs. Nilsson lives in McGrath, Alberta, and has been a breeder for more than 20 years. Her Alta Mass dogs have won dozens of titles all over the world since 2011. That's telling me that my breeding program is going in the right direction. You know, and uh, if they weren't winning, I guess I'd have to revamp the whole program. <laughs> but yeah, it makes me very proud of them. I'm very proud of my dogs, very proud of Alta. Nielsen plans to retire in five years, and she hopes to find someone just as passionate to take over her operation. You have to understand your lines and how to breed. And, um, and I guess that's where I have to build some trust and that somebody will take it and go with it. Jacqueline Cousy, Global News. It's a lot going on. What were you saying, Squire? I'm not going to say it now. Okay. You can tell me later. Okay. Uh, all right. Final word on weather to Christy. Thanks, Soph. So over the next few days, we're expecting temperatures at night to drop down to only 17 to maybe 20 degrees. If you need relief from your very hot apartment, go to a cooling shelter, please. And use Squire's hat trick in That's ice water. That's a good water. trick. Dip it yeah. in cold water and ice and put it on your head. Have a good night, all. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.